The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. When John Clark and Marion Finucane first got together, they promised each other that they'd never be boring. What ensued was 40 years of conversation and thousands of miles travelled. Finucane and Me, My Life with Marion is a fascinating new book detailing the truly extraordinary life the two shared. John Clark, author of the book and husband of the late Marion Finucane, joins me now. John, good morning. Good morning, Pat. I want to start at the very end of the book because it finishes... But I cannot get around the fact that you walk up the steps of a building, as I did over 50 years ago, and somebody is standing there, and that's it. That was it for Finucane and me. So it was a love affair of 50 years. From day one. Well, I'm not too sure it was a love affair from day one, but there was a certain attraction, you know, and it just grew and grew and grew, and... uh, I don't know the answer to any of these things, Pat, to be honest with you. <laughs> you see, when I read the book, yeah. and I did it not quite in one sitting, but almost, yeah. um, it, your writing is magnificent. And I thought, John Clark, author, writer, yeah. who knew? Yeah. It runs, though, in the blood, because um, your father was an eminent man. Yeah. I, I, it's not, that's the first book I've ever written. And I think it'll possibly be the last, you know. And uh, I found the writing quite easy because I was just telling a story. Uh, I didn't have to create things. You know, I do know there was a lady typing it and she said, how many Fs does he use in any sentence? <laughs> and the answer is, how long is the sentence? <laughs> <laughs> so th- they were deleted, you know. As far as I'm aware. But I learned a lot about you. For yeah. instance, you know, you were a bit of a layabout as a teenager. Oh, yeah. And, and the inevitability was, if there's nothing kind of serious you're going to do in life, well, I'll become a businessman. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was an extraordinary place. There were no jobs, uh, you know. There was no careers uh, that I'm aware of, you know. You could get a job in a very... Uh, in insurance or Guinnesses. But if you lived down the country, and I knew a lot about the country, you know, apart from working on a farm, there was no off-farm work. Once you got out of swaddling clothes, you were on that boat to England. Yeah. Or Canada or now, America. And, and you did, at a certain point, you did go to, to yeah. England. And there's, there's a moment... Uh, on your travels, which struck me me and has stayed with me, and that is the story of the daffodils. Yeah. What happened? The daffodils, I was, if you remember, at that time you had to go on the mail boat, as they called it, and there was customs going into England, and they opened their bags like it was wartime, and they opened my bag and had another suit and a couple of shirts, and there was a girl next beside me and he opened her huge big old case it was made that sort of funny cardboard thing I don't know what the word is for it. and in it was a bunch of daffodils that that's all was all that's all no she clothes, had no nothing a bunch of daffodils which I picked she f- figured she picked up somewhere coming here to give to a relative I thought it was the saddest thing I ever saw I often wondered what happened to the lady with the daffodils? 
you know, she's probably dead now, but uh, I hope she isn't. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the Ireland that you left was an Ireland where, and uh, you quote this uh, happening, John Charles McQuaid, the Archbishop of Dublin, is going to confer people, con- confirmation. Yeah. And he asks, which one is the illegitimate child? Yeah. And he ignores her. And he walked right past it. That's the Ireland yeah. that you were leaving. We were a theocracy, you know, and a poor one at that. Um, you didn't stay long in, in London. You came back and, uh, I mean, you say in the book that you found it very easy to make money. Yeah. What was it? What were you oh, good at? About? I te- telling people stories like you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. But you were able to buy and sell yeah. at a profit. My mother and I, my mother was, was a trader, a very matriarchal woman. I mean, the feminist movement would have driven her mad. You know, she was the boss. <laughs> and, uh, you know, let you go through all this nonsense. But she loved buying antiques, for instance. Uh, and we bought, bought and sold houses, you know. You could buy a good house around Ball's Bridge for the same price now as a weekly wage. Wow. And as far as I was concerned, if you sold it the following day and made £50, weren't you flying? (laughs) (laughs) So it's that sort of thing. And then we bought other property and so on. And um, it didn't interfere with your life, you know. Uh, So, And you also bought land in Mayo. Yeah, I bought a mountain once. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, now, meantime, no, nobody else would buy the mountain. The poor woman was trying to sell it to everybody, including the forestry and everything. Nobody wanted to buy it. And I thought, you know, a pound an acre is a reasonable price. For There's it. got to be money to be made on yeah. this. Yeah. Now, meantime, um, you uh, have got yourself married to yeah. one Catherine O'Neill, yeah. who wasn't particularly interested in sheep farming yeah, at the I weekends. Sure, yeah. <laughs> and, and you had three boys. Yeah. Meantime, young Miss Finucane is protesting at Hume Street yeah. against the destruction of George in Dublin. That's right. And uh, it was all just a paradoxical thing. You know, she worked for Stevenson Gibney, who would have been classed as one of the knocker-down and builder-up developers. Uh, and pals of yours, as it happened. Oh, yeah. Arthur and I soldiered together in most of the bars of Dublin and other places. And uh, it was... Quite paradoxical, she went there. Now, they were very good architects in the modern idiom, and they were the place to learn how to be an architect, she thought, anyhow. I remember once talking to Marion. I don't know what stage it was, but she said, I've decided I won't be an architect. And I said, why not? She said, I'm not good enough. She said, I came in here under a total misapprehension. She had a very good mark in honours maths Mm -hmm. in the Leaving Cert and she thought architecture was all about maths for some odd reason. If you had that you know where the kids go now for this work experience. Yeah. She would never have become. If she'd seen what it was really like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean she did the Leaving Cert twice. Yeah. (laughs) And got uh, top marks in maths. Yeah. 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 Um, ultimately, of course, she became a broadcaster. Yeah. And I was one of those fellows with good maths too, and I became a broadcaster yeah. too. Is there a relationship? You know, I, I know you were very good at maths. The other thing I thought was fascinating, an old friend of yours rang me from New York, Patrick Farley, uh-huh. and he was saying that 
you and Marion started together or thereabouts. And That's you right. Were... She was doing television continuity announcing. Yeah. I was doing announcing on radio and doing a bit of news reading yeah. around the same time. And then she and I were working on the same radio program together. So That fellow Littleton was very bright. Michael Littleton. He was, when uh, he picked the two of you lot. You well, know. he was also very good that when we erred, which we did, yeah. he would defend us against the upper management. Yeah. Now, he would, it wouldn't stop him giving us a bollocking yeah. for our errors, but yeah. he was a great middle manager in the sense that he defended his people, which uh, I will always remember him for. He was also very inventive and creative in yeah. his own bizarre way, you know. He picked young blood, uh, all good at maths for reasons, because <laughs> he did like chess. Mm. Um, moving on to your relationship with, with Marion, I mean, obviously, I mean, we should mention in passing, that you got to know each other and then you parted and she got married herself. Yeah. She married a, a very nice man uh, called Larry. He uh, was an architect. Um, he he and I would be poles apart in terms of personality and uh, my view of the world, life, and other likely mm. things. Um, You're... I mean, your life would have been described as chaotic and yeah. his would not. Yeah. And then I uh, <clears throat> I told somebody, I became, I was a bookworm. That was the only focal point in my life. Drink and books. Mm. And uh, led a chaotic life, could make some money. I never wanted to save money or do any of those things. Just make enough to get me by, you know, and then something else would come up. Now, you realized you could not resist, both of you, Marion and yourself, that you had to be together, and that did come to pass, although you didn't marry for ages. No. Well, I would take a view. Um, I'm for marriage for lots of people and so on and so forth. We've both been married before. Uh, it didn't make us love any more or any less. In fact, uh, the bounds of marriage sort of tie you down. You, you don't feel as free in certain ways to love somebody when you're married. I can't really fully explain it, but there are constraints on it. You mean it's voluntary if you're not married? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you can always walk, Yeah, both parties. I think our marriage worked terribly well. And there are areas that we didn't go into, we didn't talk about if one person felt fed up with the other party. We dropped it, you know, yeah. go, go somewhere else. Now, you describe yourself as the worst housekeeper in the world yeah. and Marion as the second worst. Well, or was I, it vice versa? <laughs> no, I think she was probably the first and I would be a close second, you know, on that. She didn't like housework, hated housework. I don't like housework and don't like doing it either, you know. We were agreed on that. So we lived in chaos. Yeah. And uh, that was grand. And then if somebody's calling to see us... Uh, A we, flurry of activity. Yeah, yeah. For about 10 or 15 minutes. That ended that, you know. Yeah. You, uh, um, when you were living, what, about an hour and a half away from Dublin yeah. in a pile, that's the yeah. way we should put it, um, it was a big commute, and you ended up doing a lot of the homemaking, if you like, yeah. uh, while Marion was toing and froing yeah. from RTE. But then, uh, you know, a great bacchanalia, perhaps, at the weekend. Yeah. And the, I, I was greatly taken by the idea that, say, Nulo Fuelon and Nell McCafferty would come to visit, and 
the topic of conversation over dinner would be what happened in Dallas yeah. this week. Uh, well, this pair of them watched it together. Uh, was it on once or twice a week? I think. Once a week, yeah. And they came back and they told their version of what happened. And they never agreed on what they saw. <laughs> I, I don't know how you worked that one out. And then Marion and I would analyze Dallas and Mary Sue, Mary Ellen, whoever she was. <laughs> Sue Nell, Ellen. Nell was in love with her. And the the um, nature of uh, your relationship uh, involved drink. Marion liked to drink. Yeah. Uh, you liked more than a drink. Yeah. Well, let me put it straight. I ended up, if one ends up as an alcoholic, uh, I get that off my chest anywhere I meet. You know, I am an alcoholic. But I, the way you write your book, I mean, it, there are many humorous asides in your book. And one of them is when you go to John of God's and you meet the therapist and he says something like, you got a great run out of it all the same. <laughs> <laughs> Before you finally decide yeah. enough is enough. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, I t- can I preach a little? Uh, if you're going to go off to drink as an alcoholic, you have to be endlessly truthful to yourself. Uh, and you've got to r- really look at yourself and you ask, who am I, you know, and so on. And that's a very painful exercise. And if, but you come through it. And you become a very different person. I think I, I did anyhow, you know. And I sought truth about yeah. me, you know. I'm the easiest one to tell myself I'm wonderful. <laughs> you know, I can do it any day I want. And I know it's a load of bullshit. You know, lots of times I'm not wonderful, you know. And to acknowledge that I can make mm-hmm. mistakes, I'm totally human, uh, I have sometimes a depressive ego, sometimes an inflated ego, and to acknowledge that. Yeah, but uh, I mean, even when you were going to your first uh, AA meeting, and you don't, uh, what goes on in AA meetings stays in AA meetings, but the first one wasn't entirely to your taste. You needed lads more like yourself, (laughs) you know, who'd had the same kind of experiences as yourself. Well, I was in various ones, and they talk about this, that, and the other. And it it's very hard to share uh, lots of things if you don't have the same experiences. Yeah. You know, uh, you can share your common illness, if you wish, uh, which is alcohol. You know, and you can share how you get out of it. But life is made up of layers and layers and layers, you know. But for example, uh, the nun who might be sneaking a bottle of the altar wine versus the lads who used to meet in McDade's. Yeah. Very different. There's quite a difference, you know. (laughs) And uh, there was, strange enough, quite a few nuns in AA too. There's all shapes, all sizes. uh, And hopefully they stayed there. I stayed there. I mean, when Marion died or the night, the day we buried her, I went to AA that night because I felt, you know, there's no point in me hanging around with all these mourners drinking and so on and so forth. It's a vulnerable yeah. time. Get out of here. Um, 
into every life, you know, lots of rain must fall. And yeah. uh, your your two children, Jack and Sinead, Sinead, you lost. Yeah. And Marion, after Sinead died from leukemia and complications arising yeah. therefrom, having had the life-saving possibility through a bone marrow transplant that worked for a while. Yeah. You guys made the decision for Sinead that you couldn't put her through anymore. Yeah. And you allowed her the time that was left to her, just a matter of nine or ten weeks, yeah. to be filled with joy as yeah. much as you could. Yeah. How does a parent do that? It's surreal. It is the nearest word I could get to it, you know. Uh, and then you get involved and engaged and uh, life goes on I mean she still had to sit properly at the table and all those things you know uh, I suppose the question that always puzzled me in hindsight uh, did she know she was dying she used to have Ask the odd question, you know, like, am I going to die? And everybody fudged it by saying, well, we're all going to die. Mm -hmm. uh, and that went on. So I never knew. Did she know she was dying? It's one of the things that puzzled you because yeah. I wasn't going to tell her, you know. And uh, um, Marion didn't afterwards, didn't want to talk too much to people who would sympathize with her about no. Her grief, and yeah. afterwards, when there was a suggestion she might go to a therapist to cope with her grief, yeah. she said, "Why? Why do you want to get rid of your grief? Yeah, because grief is about remembering the person who's yeah. gone. Why would you want to get rid of that?" That's a real complex one, Pat. It really is. You know, um, she wants to hold on to that grief. I don't know why. Uh, I think it was, um, can, I, can we come from it from another way? And it's something I don't know and it's something you don't know. It's the woman that has the baby. And it must be a sort of unique experience to have something growing inside you. There's all you, I suppose, except for maybe DNA, but the physical part is all you. And it pops out and it's a lovely child. And there must be some bond or connection there that's unique that we as males will never know or never experience. You know, we can love our children, which we do. We can do all those things. But it's not ours, you know. Yeah. It grew out of his mummy's tummy, you know. The, yeah. I remember an old one saying to me, you know, you can have... Uh, a thousand fathers, but only one mother. And there's a significance yeah. in that. So I would be guessing, maybe a, a coherent guess, of why and how she dealt with her grief. But she wanted it as part of her baggage or her journey through life. Yeah. And, uh, there are so many aspects to, to your lives together and uh, we'll talk in a moment about the work that you did for children who were suffering from HIV, yeah. the hospice that you, yeah. you, you built. Um, but you also said that you each had a private life, that, that yeah. there were elements of each other's lives that you never shared. 
that you, in fact, it was almost essential to have a private yeah. life. I'm always interested, Pat, and you know more about these things than I do. You know, we only use 10% of our brains. They say, mm. those who know. So there you have 90% of your brain flapping around in there. <laughs> what does it do? <laughs> you know, and I heard somebody saying, well, we don't have the language to talk to our brain. I mean, what what does the rest of my brain do? I think it leads another life, maybe. Um, you did so much work um, in Kerala. You did work in Africa. And, uh, I mean, this a story you tell of the, the great scheme that what do people need here? They need hens. Yeah. So you bought 50 hens. Yeah. That was one of our... More of our disaster. No, no, it wasn't a disaster. No. What did they do? The idea was okay. the hens would lay loads of eggs. We were out in a, a camp outside Joburg, and we met this nun, and she was trying to feed a load of children in the camp, and it had been a, an, arm, an army firing range, and uh, there was a lot of unexploded ordnance on it and children were getting their legs blown off or adults were getting blown up everybody's getting blown up and there was one lady there who had a hen and the hen laid eggs and she sat on the side of her, not the hen, the lady and uh, sold the eggs and this nun said if they had 50 hens, that would be 50 families with a hen and they could all sell eggs on the side of the road so she said she'd love that. So we bought her 50 hens for 50 euros. And um, we had left anywhere. It wasn't an area we worked in. We didn't go near Joburg. Uh, and I came back a year later, and there was no hens. And I said to them, what happened? The hens. And the kids, who were very clever, uh, I thought, anyhow, used to chase the hens across the unexploded bombs so they didn't get their legs blown off. So every hen ended up as a puff of feathers somewhere <laughs> under African skies, you know. But <laughs> so they were clearing the yeah, unexploded they pathway. And the other thing that I only discovered later, which I should have thought of, they were clearing a pathway to get the scrap copper of the shells, which made a few bobs. Much more than yeah, an egg. The more than a hen. So uh, we had a, quite a few experiences. That yeah. I mean, people talk about doing good things in Africa. What we learned and the experience we had paid us handsomely. You know, and when we started Africa, and there was a connection between Sinead and the slums in Cape Town, but Medicine Sans Frontier asked us to go to the Eastern Cape or the tribal lands most beautiful place in the world, riddled with HIV AIDS. They died like flies, you know. And we said, we know nothing, not really. We don't know how to do AIDS, we don't know how to do this and that. So we'll make fools of ourselves. So we set ourselves a target of one child. If save we, one child. If we saved one child, our work wasn't in vain. And I'm not too sure how many we saved. But we certainly had somewhere near 30,000 children went through our various schools and so on. There was all sorts of others. I 
never knew that until we were leaving home and children we have, because I never thought about it. We had kept no doing targets. it, kept doing it. You know, but the only ones I remember are the ones that died. Eventually, you you decided because of you know advancing age and so on, and you'd done so much that you'd call a halt. Yeah. But there were infirmities creeping into both of you. Oh yeah. Marian, age is called age, but also Marion was a smoker from yeah. uh, from her student days. Yeah, and it was beginning to take its toll. Yeah. Did you have any premonition that the next chapter in your lives, and you were preparing a home in Dublin City that would, yeah. you know, be renovated and yeah. be just suitable for the next phase in your yeah. life? You were preparing that. Did you have any premonition that Marion wouldn't live to see that particular phase? No, no. Uh, but I was always concerned. She didn't like doctors. And she didn't like doctors who probably gave her good advice. And uh, Didn't she send her sister in yeah. with making up symptoms that were Marion's symptoms yeah. to the doctor? There was one poor doctor where the sister came in, described her symptoms and what was wrong, doctor. And at one stage, the doctor said to her, Tell your sister to stop acting <laughs> or whatever and come in and we'll examine her. I mean, to send your sister in. <laughs> Pretending to have these <laughs> symptoms. <laughs> Crazy stuff. And I know uh, she died after we flew back from India. We were in, up in Mumbai at a wedding, strangely enough. I said to her, you know, this is disaster, us going to India. I said, if you get a fibrillation or whatever you get with those things, you know. You know, back up here. In the middle of nowhere. History, you know. It's just crazy, you know. I said, should you talk to the doctor before you go? And she just said, need to know basis. Uh, we went. That wasn't though... It wasn't the brightest idea in the world. Yeah, but it wasn't, was it, it wasn't the flight or anything that, that no. did the damage. This was coming. Yeah. She had. She shouldn't have gone. I shouldn't have gone. Uh, we shouldn't have gone. Uh, but her view was, you know, life was so interesting. You know, why bother your head with these doctors? They're sort of, you need them, but uh, they can be wrong too. Get on with it. Mm-hmm. Do you have any regrets yourself that you didn't kind of? No. That you were not force more forceful, shall no, we say? Not strong. strong arming her into no. the doctor's surgery. No. no. Well, you know, it wouldn't have succeeded. I know. <laughs> and that's why our marriage or whatever was succeeded because I know my limitations. You know, it's as simple as that. It was sad. It was bad. It was a great way to die. The timing was wrong. Yeah. Um, she died in her sleep and yeah. perhaps you didn't even know that I don't she had... think she did. Yeah. And it was a wonderful way to die. It's the sort of way I want to die, but not just yet, you know. If I can introduce her, I'm building a Zen garden, which is a crazy idea. And phase one will take me another 40 years. <laughs> will I get it? <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm not sure anyone in this studio will be around to see its completion, John, <laughs> except perhaps uh, your, yourself. But you never know. You never know. Yeah. Um, I shed many's a tear and had many's a laugh uh, as I was reading the book, John, it is just a wonderful, wonderful well, book. Well, thank you very it's much. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, having 
known you over the years, but yeah. not knowing you well enough yeah. to to not enjoy the revelations. Yeah. In, Did you think in the I book. was a secret book writer? <laughs> it's published by Gill. It's called Finucane and Me: My Life with Marion, and its author, Marion's husband, John Clark. Thank you very much for joining us in studio today. Well, thank you for listening to me, and thank you for inviting me in. It's been good.